Welcome back, friends. This is part two of our series on Raiders of the Lost Ark versus Back to the Future. We really appreciate you joining us again, and we hope you tune in for all the episodes to come. Without further ado. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, discussing and debating the iconic and the forgotten of 80s and 90s pop culture with your co-hosts, James D. Graves and Jason Colvin. Welcome back for part two of the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Well, okay, well, let's talk about the actors that were considered for Nina yes. Jones for a second. You want yes, to do that? let's do that. Okay. So, as it's, I mean, it's well known, but maybe, maybe our listeners may have not heard it, maybe sure. or whatever. Yeah. Tom Selleck was hired yeah. to be Indiana Jones. Absolutely. He had the part. He did. He actually auditioned with Sean Young. Right. Sean, Sean Young, who was in Blade Runner. Yes. And Tom Selleck had the part, was Indiana Jones. You can watch the audition tape. It looked like he was going to do a good job. Yeah. Of course, he's that still broad-shouldered. He was an entirely different-looking Indiana Jones. He looked like a hulking Indiana Jones instead of... Professor Jones in a leather jacket. Right. But he had just filmed a pilot for the show called Magnum P.I. Right. And CBS said, mm, no, don't think we're going to release you. We want to go ahead and do this Magnum P.I. thing. So he could had, had to back out. Right. And at the time, you know, Spielberg was like, well, what about what about Harrison? You know? Right. He was in American Graffiti with George Lucas. Hey, you're supposed to be fasting in the valley, man, but that can't be your car. It must be your mama's car. He was, of course, Han Solo from yeah. Star Wars. Do you owe me, Junior? And George said, I don't really want him to be my Bobby De Niro. Like, Scorsese had worked with Robert De Niro in several yes. movies, and he keeps reappearing as different characters in all of his movies. Yeah. George was very much against Harrison Ford doing it. That's fascinating. As it turns out, Harrison Ford was the perfect fit. But here's a couple other guys who auditioned and were at least in consideration yes. for, for Indiana Jones. Tim Matheson, who you might remember from Animal House and yes. Fletch. Yeah. Right? He, and he has the right look, but not the right time. Right. Peter Coyote. He was in E.T. You, he's yeah. been in some movies. You probably right. He's not tough enough. He's not a handsome man. Um, a guy named John Shea. I don't know who that is. I don't either. Turns out he's... That was a good call there, too. Yeah. Sean Young was very, very close. Deborah Winger actually turned down the part for Marion Ravenwood. And Deborah Winger, famous for Urban Cowboy and Beaches, which and I can proudly say I've never seen. Officer and Gentleman. So those were actors that were considered. Harrison Ford, of course, picks it up and runs with it. Right. And then you have, in the part of Marion... Karen Allen. Who was also in Animal House. Yes. And... I got to say, she didn't do a whole lot after this. You know, it's a shame about Crystal Skull and all, but um, but she didn't. But she was perfect in this part. She, she was, was great. The, I just there's no other person that I think would have done this part. She better. did a She's, fantastic job. Yeah. She has the spunk. Yep. In the fire. Yes. And you believe it when she is. She has enough feminine wiles to seduce Belloc in the tent. You know, and yes. So she was great. Fit. 
Yeah, she's scrappy and pretty. She's tough, but can be frightened like a damsel in distress. I mean, she does it all very well. And, and that's something to consider about this character. You know, I, I'm all for the women who kick butt like Black Widow. But for this time and this day, she kicked butt, but she was still someone who needed rescue. She sometime. pulled off the white dress. Yep. She also, you believe that punch when she hits Indy in the chin the first time oh, they yeah. see, you know. I need one of the pieces your father collected. I learned to hate you in the last 10 years. Anyway, so that's how it came about. I bet we've been together for a million years. Let's talk about the actors that were originally supposed to be in Back to the Future. Okay, so for the part of Marty McFly, they wanted Michael J. Fox from the get-go. Absolutely, they did. But very much like Tom Selleck, he had just become involved in a very popular TV show called Family Ties. Yes. Um, Alex P. Keaton. Alex P. Keaton. I loved watching Family Ties. Family Ties is a great show. And ironically enough, he played this character who was who rebelled against his hippie parents by being the Republican of the family. Right. He was the you know the biggest supporter of Ronald Reagan, and he was the pull for the show. I mean, everybody wanted to watch him. Oh, absolutely. Goldberg's the name of the guy who's producing Family Ties, and he's like, I love the script. I will not let Michael J. Fox read it because if he reads it, he's going to want to do it and you cannot have him. I just need him too much. He's, he's in full-time, full-time job being Alex P. Keaton right now. No way. Right. So they consider several other people, including Johnny Depp. Yes. John Cusack. Yes. Uh, C. Thomas Howell finished second to the guy they actually ended up hiring. Right. And also considered was Charlie Sheen. Really? Yeah. I didn't know Charlie Sheen. C. Thomas Howell at that time? Yes. Was big because of The Outsiders, right? He's, I mean, it's very popular. We're talking about 1983 is when they're doing the casting. So he's he's at the top of his game right now. Yeah. Can you imagine Marty McFly, Johnny Depp? No. Or John Cusack? No. No. C. Thomas Howell at the time made sense, but now, no. Right. It's, it's Michael J. Fox. But they end up hiring Eric Stoltz. Who had been in a movie with Leah Thompson. The Wildlife. Right. So that's actually how she got cast. They were looking at his Wildlife movie and they were like, who's that girl? Right. Yeah, let's have her come in. And it was because she nailed the old Lorraine that she got that part. It was meant to be. Yeah, because, I mean, obviously she's young and beautiful. She can pull off the high school student without any trouble. Let's see how she does with an old beat-down lady. And she nailed it. Right. So they start filming with Eric Stoltz, and they filmed a lot. They did. They filmed a whole like, lot. Like but, six weeks, right? But at the outset, they start to see trouble. Mm-hmm. And Leah Thompson talks about how when they sat down to do their the reading, you know, they'll sit down at the table, and everybody, they go through the whole movie. Everybody reads their lines. You know, they go through this whole thing. And it's, you've got this funny rom-com sci-fi action adventure thing and everybody's laughing at the end and talking about what they think. And they're like, Eric, what do you think? And he goes, you know, I think it's, I think it's a tragedy. (laughs) And and they're like, what? And he's like, well, everything that this guy has ever known is all of a sudden gone. I mean, he comes back to a completely different existence. I can't imagine how upsetting that would be. And apparently that kind of was the way it went for the rest of the filming with Eric Stoltz. Yeah. Now, Eric Stoltz was a method actor. Yes. Which means he's kind of kooky about how he does stuff. We've heard about Sean Penn in Fast Times at Richmond High. Everybody had to call him Spicoli. He wouldn't answer to anything else. Eric Stoltz did the same thing. He said he wanted people to only call him Marty. He wouldn't answer to anything but Marty. Right. I love this story that you're getting ready to tell here. 
Yes. And so, you know, they're, they keep shooting. He's got this tragedy idea in his head. Bob Zemeckis calls Bob Gale and says, I need you to come look at some of these shots. I think we've got a problem. And Bob Gale's like, we never look at shots until the movie's done. That just doesn't happen. So this has got to be something really bad. So they go and look and it's just sad. I mean, it's not, he's not making the funny funny. And so Spielberg being the experienced guy that he is, it says, I'll talk to Eric about what's going on. And this may be a, this may be apocryphal, but hey, I'm going to tell the story anyway. It's good. What it's heard. a good story. Yeah. So Spielberg goes goes over to Eric Stoltz's trailer, and he's like, "Eric, come here. We need to talk." And he's like, uh, "Marty." And he's like, "Eric, just come here. We need to talk." And he's like, "My name is Marty." He goes, "No, your name is Eric, and you're fired." <laughs> Love it. <laughs> you are no longer Marty. Yeah. Yeah. You got to give it back. Right. And so at that point, I don't remember what they said to Goldberg that convinced him to let Michael J. Fox come over and and do both. But he was literally filming Family Ties and Back to the Future at the same time. He would film uh, Family Ties during the day. He would hop in a car and sleep in the car as he drove to the set for the shooting for Back to the Future. Um, when they kind of approached him about this idea, he was like, 22 years old, what do I need to sleep? Right. In fact, if you notice in Back to the Future, the day shots, when he's on the skateboard, yeah. all those were shot on the weekends. Anytime uh-huh. you see daylight, it was yeah. a weekend shot. And there's, yeah, I mean, quite a few night shots. I don't know if that's the reason that they had to go, f- that they had to have their experiment at 1 at 15 in the morning. Uh, maybe that was it. I think so. Hey. That had a big part of it. Yeah. Right. Also, somebody else was fired the same time Eric Stoltz was fired. Did you hear this story? No. Okay, so Laura Harden. She was originally supposed to be Jennifer Parker. Okay. She was fired when Eric Stoltz was fired. Right. Laura Harden, uh, you you recognize her from The Office. She's the girlfriend. She's Jan in The Office. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So she was fired. You know why she was fired? Too tall. She was too tall for Michael J. Fox. Right. With Eric, Eric was a taller guy, and so she fit with him. The girl that originally cast was the girl who ended up playing Jennifer, but she just couldn't do it. She had started another TV series of her own at the time, so she wasn't able to do the movie. But by the time that they switched back and had Michael J. Fox, yeah, yeah the TV pilot had busted, and so she was free to film the movie. And so insert Claudia Wells as Jennifer Parker, which yeah. is really cool. And before we move on, the, the fact that the cast all had six weeks to sort of live dress rehearse yeah. could only improve their performances, I think. Yeah. Well, and, you know, they, they talked about that, talked to, like, Christopher Lloyd had obviously had to sh- reshoot all of these scenes with Marty that he had done before. Right. Now, Christopher Lloyd is a stage actor. I mean, he was in Taxi, which is a TV show, but he is very script-centric. You know, he gets an idea of who the character is, and then he sticks to the script. Whereas Michael J. Fox, his acting chops had come along in TV shows, which were constantly rewritten. And so Michael, when he came in, would ad-lib lines. It didn't throw Christopher Lloyd off because he's a talented man, but it was an entirely different experience from the method acting that he had gotten with Eric Stoltz. Right. And some of the best lines in this movie are ad-lib lines. The, whoa, rock and roll was an ad-lib line. That's not how it was originally written in the script. That's really cool. Yeah. Hey, uh, it's not the years, it's the mileage. Ad-lib line from Raiders of the Lost Ark. What are you looking at, butthead? Ad-lib line. Wow. Yep. That's cool. All right, so listen to this list of actors that were considered for Doc Brown. So here you go. John Lithgow, Dudley Moore, James Woods, Jeff Goldblum, Gene Wilder, Gene Hackman, Danny DeVito, Robin Williams, John Cleese. 
John Cleese is the only one of those I guys agree. that I could see actually I totally agree. doing it, but still, it's not the same movie even with him. Oh, Chris Lloyd it kills it. Did you ever watch The Old Taxi? A little bit. Uh-huh. So his character was this kind of crazy Goofy, character, yeah. which pulled him in. And he had rejected the script initially. Like it They is. sent it to him, they wanted him, but he was like, yeah, I'm doing this other thing. I'm not really interested. And his wife said, "You know, you, you always said you would never turn down something without looking at it first. Right? So he's like, mm, "Okay, well, if my wife feels like I need to look at it, then maybe yeah. I look at it." Right. And so I, I know you and I have talked about this. I have some other friends that I talk about on Twitter, but the alternate universe of a Back to the Future movie with C. Thomas Howell and Gene Wilder. <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? Twenty-one gigawatts. Great Scott! What? What the hell is a gigawatt? Yeah, <laughs> so, in the TV series Taxi, he plays this kind of nutty office rocker, just, you know, off-center a little bit. Yes. And he always does the bug-eye thing. You know, yeah. he throws his head back and he bugs his eyes out. <laughs> right. And so, the very first time that you see him in Back of the Future, he does that look. He gets out of the door. Out of the car. Like, That's right. Right, so there's your MacGuffin for Back to the Future. The MacGuffin for Raiders of the Lost Ark is obviously the Ark. Yes. It's the driving force behind the movie. The MacGuffin for Back to the Future is the Time Machine DeLorean. Okay. And so it's you know it's got an earlier beautiful introduction, and you know just to compare them, you've got this bright shiny golden religious treasure here, and then on the other side of Back to the Future, you've got this bright shiny silver ultra-modern scientific wonder yep. as the driving forces behind the movies. And so then he pops up the, the wing doors and pops out of the driver's seat and does his bug-eye look from Taxi, and everybody's like, ah, oh, yes, I'm familiar. I know this man now. Doc! Marty! You made it! Yeah! We've also we, we've had a little bit of an establishment when Strickland, being Didn't a that guy nut, ever had hair? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, um, go ahead. He talks about him being a nut, so we kind of have this idea of, of the nuttiness behind him already. And then, of course, we've we've seen the shed outside of the Burger King that is his current abode after right. his mansion is. By the way, again, set up. I had to try. I was like, why? Why are we seeing a newspaper clipping about the mansion being destroyed and him selling the Brown Estate? of prime real estate. And I realized that's how he got all the money to do all of this stuff. That's how he funds his stuff, yeah. Yeah, he sold everything that he had just to make the flux capacitor and whatever the machine is that turns plutonium into electricity. Right. The whole He sold his entire fortune for a dream that he had after he hit his head on a toilet. While hanging the clock. <laughs> okay, cool. We got that covered? Yes, yeah, so uh, Tom Wilson... Uh, there were some other options. Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins was one of the possibilities for the part of uh, Biff Tannen. You know, Tim Robbins is a good... He, he can be menacing a little bit, but he can be funny. Yeah. But Tom Wilson is the perfect ultra butthead. Yeah. And when you see... I can remember seeing him... All of them. I mean, every single one of them. Crispin Glover, Tom Wilson, and Leah Thompson. Every single one of them. The first time I saw that movie, I thought... They are that old. And then when we got to the 1955, I thought, how do they do that? Oh my gosh, that's really them. And they just made them look old because they did such a great job with their makeup and the lighting so that you just believe they're old. Particularly Crispin Glover, I think. Yeah. He was the one that I was like, man, is he old or young? I can't tell. I really like the comb over that Biff has, though. 
1985. <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. With his polyester pants. Crispin Glover, he's the only one that kind of rubs me the wrong way on this whole cast. You know, it's interesting that you say that because obviously the directors didn't keep him around for number two or number three. He drove them insane. I think it was one of the most disappointing things for Leah Thompson. She felt like he did such a good job. And really, if you go and look, he does. He does does that. Hey, you, get your damn hands off. Oh, I think you got the wrong car, McFly. George, help me, please. Just turn around, McFly, and walk away. Are you deaf, McFly? Close the door and beat it. No, Biff. You leave her alone. And he, again, he was one of the method actors who did these kind of weird things, so that probably rubbed them a bit wrong with their Eric Stoltz experience. But also he was infamous for missing the marks, where as you're filming a movie, you have to land at a certain spot so that you're at the right spot in the frame of the shot, Mm -hmm. and he would miss it, and they'd redo it, and he'd miss it, and they'd redo it. And so in the sequels, uh, you had a a stand-in who was hung upside down. Right. Uh, which honestly they had, I thought, oh, they hung him upside down so we can't really see his face. No, the truth is they had written that scene in already with him in mind, and it was to keep him from missing his mark. And it was, yeah, it was intentionally to mess with him, to mess yeah. with Crispin Glover. Yeah. Which, here's his quote that I found that, that this is one of the reasons why it kind of bugs me. Yeah. So, Crispin Glover claims to have only seen the film once shortly after its release. Yeah. That just, that just whole that whole thing just bugs me. Well, here's the thing. I don't know. I mean, just think about this. Johnny Depp never watches any of his movies. I think that's the dumbest thing. Well, I can understand it because a lot of times when I see myself on camera, I'm uncomfortable. I'm like, is that really what I look like? And if you've got that in your head as you're trying to perform in other situations, it's going to mess with you. I get it. I can. I understand how it can be bothersome. And then as far as only seeing it one time, I think a lot of them probably just saw it one time. But when you've been in the movie, you don't have to keep go. You don't have to watch it like the fanboys that we so. do. I guess so. I don't know. That just irks me. Uh, I, anyway. He but, apparently is, is a kind of a, uh, eccentric he is, definitely. type of guy. There, he's, there's an infamous uh, interview that he did with David Letterman, his appearance on David Letterman, that was just... Bizarre beyond belief. And then they... You, I don't have these... You seem to be distraught. They don't... You seem to be distraught. People try to make me sound a lot weird, and yeah. I'm just... I'm strong, you know? I'm strong. I can arm wrestle. I, do you want to arm wrestle? No. I've been taking... No, no I've taken... These aren't mine. I can, I can, I can kick. Okay. okay. I'm, I'm going to go check on the top ten. No, I'm did you enjoy that, Paul? It was uh, an interesting segment. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the first time uh, we've been doing the show that a, a guest actually tried to kick me. But you couple that with Christopher Lloyd. Chris Lloyd. Yeah. He has said publicly, he's, ch- he's channel surfing, whatever, comes across, hey, back future. Yeah. So he'll watch it. Interesting. I think that's really cool. Yeah. He it's I think it's cool that he can join us and be in a favor. Okay, Dean, let's talk about composers 
and Huey Lewis for a minute. Okay, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Specifically on Huey Lewis, I can remember him as a major part of things I was seeing and hearing in my early childhood. Um, I Before this movie, we had... Uh, Sports was one of the first three cassette tapes that I owned, along with um, Minute Work and Wham. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Shout out for uh, Careless Whisper right there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All I cared about was wake me up before you go down when I was six. Okay, cool. So, yeah, for me, I'm with you. Uh, sports uh, was a tape that I wore out at my house. Uh, Harder Rock and Roll. Yeah. They said my hometown in there, right? Right. Tulsa, yeah. Austin, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. City yeah. Right. So uh that was that was big for my fifth grade self right there. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, Huey Lewis is a big factor for Back to the Future and then we can look at the composers as well. And they are both icons and were both kind of at the beginning stages at the time that these movies came out. Um, John Williams was the composer for Raiders of the Lost Ark yep. and he had done a few movies before that but was really kind of building the momentum he had obviously done star wars for george lucas he had done superman for richard donner he had done Close Encounters. Thank you. Close Encounters and Jaws. Yeah. And let me just take this moment right here to pay homage to a podcast that you and I both listen to uh, called The Soundtrack Show. Yeah, it's Uh, fantastic. It is. It is incredible. It it does a a better job than we could ever hope to do uh, with what it does. And it is uh, brilliant. Uh, Thank you, David W. Collins, for putting that out there for us to learn from. If you haven't listened to it, do yourself a favor. And I, I will tell you from my standpoint... As somebody who's seen these, both of these movies so many times, I can can barely count it. When you listen to to his podcast and he breaks down the music, yes. I'm like, I gotta go rewatch this movie. Absolutely, it, it's a fresh approach to a movie that I know by heart. I'll say this, you know, growing up, I can remember punching on a Sugar Ray Leonard boxing bag while listening to the Rocky soundtrack. I can remember putting on my Superman t-shirt, my little red cape that grandma made me, and flying around the room to the Superman soundtrack. When I started playing music and doing music, that was one of the things that I did, was try to put together things that I thought would sound good in a movie. And when I was in the theater program, I would listen to classical music and imagine scenes and create scenes from uh, the music that I was listening to. Yeah, for sure. As it turns out, the way that movies typically go is the soundtrack doesn't happen until the end. You know, They do all of the filming, they do they do the writing, they do the editing, they do all of that. And then last stage, the symphony gets together and they put the soundtrack to the movie. And so knowing that, it's it's almost, it, it's counterintuitive to me almost. I'm just like, oh God, the, the movie seems so inspired by the music. But as it turns out, what really is happening is that these composers have been inspired by what they've seen and they take that and they give us these amazing soundtracks. That's, that's so true, yeah. So John Williams, Spielberg sits down with John Williams and tells him a little bit about what's going on. John Williams comes back with a couple of themes. I thought this was kind of an interesting story. Yes. And he plays them both for Spielberg 
and I'm going to try and do them. Okay, I'm not a singer or anything like <laughs> that. But so he, he plays the dun 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 right? Right. That's one. Yes. And then he plays another one for me. So, okay, that's one theme that I, I like. Spielberg's like, yeah, that's really good. And then he plays this one. He says, dun 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 right? Right. And he says, well, what do you think of that one? Spielberg's like, well, can't you use both? And he does, and they, they come together, and it is awesome. John Williams has done. I mean, I don't think that there's any bigger icon at this time. No, in, he's the best, yeah. Uh, at this moment in history right now. I'm not talking about 1981. I'm talking about right at this moment. I don't think there's anybody that has reached the pinnacle that John Williams has reached. But Alan Silvestri is certainly an icon as well. No doubt. And he may not just have the notoriety that some of these guys have, but if you've seen any of the Marvel movies, you've been listening to Alan Silvestri and his soundtracks. If you've seen most of Robert Zemeckis' movies, which would include Forrest Gump, you've heard Alan Silvestri's music, and it is it is a critical ingredient to all of the movies that it's involved with. Yep, for sure. But Back to Back of the Future, what Alan Silvestri has done with the music for that is so simple and so perfect. And I know we can't know his thoughts and whether this was intentional or not, but what he does with three notes that defines the whole movie is just awe-inspiring to me. So, those three notes. It is... A note that falls down to another note, mm. as in it goes back, mm. and then the the note that leads back in is almost the first note, but not quite. It is a half step off. And this perfect little... Those, those notes together give us the picture of what happens with Marty. He starts at one place, he moves back in time, and when he returns to the future, it's exactly as it was, except not quite. It's about a (laughs) half-step difference. I love it. Okay, yeah. Alan Silvestri actually was, this was kind of his big break. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And if you want to talk about some different backgrounds here, John Williams and Alan Silvestri are are perfect comparisons of, hey, two totally different types of people can be very successful in the same field. John Williams, classically trained, was part of big bands, did whole lots of composition, worked with a whole lot of um, orchestras that did soundtracks to other movies. Alan Silvestri was in a rock and roll band. Right. I mean, that's, I, I, that's, that's really as cool as it can be. When you listen, when I, I listen to Alan Silvestri talk, yeah, I'm like, this is just Joe Blow, you know, like yeah. Joe New York guy, you yeah. know, 
And John Williams is very, you know, very precise and very, you know, refined. And they had a little bit of concern about uh, Alan Silvestri, right? And he was a part of *Romancing the Stone*. That was the movie that kind of said, "Okay, he's good enough to be involved with *Back to the Future*." He's in this position now where it's it's a, it's like, "Oh my gosh, I'm I'm involved in a movie that's a pretty big this deal." Is a big deal, yeah. Spielberg is involved with this right. thing that I'm doing, and this is this is new and crazy. And so Spielberg had his reservations about Sylvester. Yep, he was worried that he wouldn't have it. And they, at some point, they're watching the movie. They've got Alan Sylvester's soundtrack playing. And and Spielberg's like, this is it. This is what you need for the music to this thing, not what Sylvester's doing. And Bob Zemeckis is like, this is Alan. Yeah. This is it. And he's like, oh, then he's got it. Right. Now, as far as the movies go, here's another interesting thing. You've got John Williams as the first guy in... Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, he his music starts in at the beginning, and it's the mysterious walking through the jungle music. Right. Alan Silvestri's music doesn't come in for half an hour at least into yeah. the movie of Back to the Future. So we've got this thing I think that when it, it, it comes in when the DeLorean yes pops out, right? Yes. The, the scene where the back of the truck opens, the smoke or what a steam. Smoke coming out, who cares? I don't know. What, the dry ice, yeah. whatever that dry <laughs> ice effect is, that happens and it's like, whoa, that's when the music comes in. And it's a perfect point to do that. Yep. Because in my mind, what Back to the Future does that Raiders didn't do for me is that it tied two things that I love together. Raiders change the paradigm, and I can talk about that more later, but um, with Back to the Future, it took this action-adventure scenario, and it made something that was more relatable to me. Like I almost felt like I could be that guy. I could be Marty McFly. I could do the skateboarding. I could deal with the teachers. I can play the guitar. I could do those things, and so it was more identifiable to me. And so the, you were tardy for class. And- I was always. I'm still tardy. I don't feel tardy. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> but what we've got is for the first 30 minutes of the movie, we've got rock and roll music playing. We've got Huey Lewis in the News rocking us out, and I'm thinking, cool, this is another of the 80s teen comedy movies. It just happens to be about time travel, too. Okay, rock and roll. But then Sylvester's soundtrack comes in at that moment that you see the DeLorean for the first time, and suddenly the movie is more than it has been for the last 30 minutes. Right, that's right. Let's talk about Power of Love for just a second. Okay, so The Power of Love was huge starting June of 1985. Yes. And to be honest, between you and I, this is the best Huey Lewis song that they've ever made, in mm. my opinion. 
Okay. It's certainly one of the best ones, okay. for sure. Does this movie perform as well if it has I Want a New Drug in there instead of Power of Love? Well, I mean, it doesn't really work, but it's just a better song. Right, yeah. Okay. But uh, I thought it was interesting that Zemeckis went to Huey Lewis and said, hey, Marty McFly, if he were a real person, his favorite rock band would be Huey Lewis and the News. And that's kind of what clinched it for him. Yeah. So the first time out of the gate, Huey Lewis wrote a song, gave it to Robert Zemeckis, and it just wasn't really working, right? Okay. He, he tried to kind of match it to the movie. Yeah. And Zemeckis like, don't don't even worry about that. Just give me a just give me a good Huey Lewis song. Mm-hmm. And he said, like, well, I've kind of been working on this one. He played it for him. He's like, man, that's perfect. Power of love. That's the power of love. Right. And then later, after he had had power of love in the bank, he came back with back in time. Which is, an, I mean, it's another great song. And you, that's the closing credit song. Yeah. Two great, great songs from Helios and the News. Absolutely. I remember it getting tons and tons of radio play. I can remember after seeing the movie, my brother didn't have to get up as early as I did because I had to take the bus and he got to drive. So I would wake up and then later I would hear my brother's alarm clock go off and Every time it went off in like the next three months <laughs> right. after Back to the Future came out, Power of Love was the song that was playing. Well, let's hear time. the best song in the nation right now. <laughs> Power of Love, yeah. Yeah. So I remember watching the the video premiere on MTV. It yeah. was like a big deal. Like, hey, tonight, seven, MTV premiere, Power of Love. Nice. So anyway, here's what, okay, so Power of Love, Huey Lewis in the News, Alan Silvestri. I did want to mention one more thing before, I don't I don't know. We could talk all day about this, the music. But Absolutely. There is a chime that they play throughout the movie in Back to the Future. Every time that chime hits, it's when time has been altered. Right. Which is so cool, right? It's yeah. like a little thing that cues you to time just changed. Yeah. Guess what? You just killed yourself. Right. <laughs> exactly. You screwed up, Marty. <laughs> Real quickly, just something I want to mention about the Raiders soundtrack. So, Indy has his own theme. Yes. The Ark has its own theme. Yes. Which is a home run. Oh my gosh. Headpiece to the Staff of Ra has its own theme. Yes. Basket Chase has its own theme. Right, and he does something, you know, that, that's kind of a terrifying scene, but what John Williams does with the music that moment, with his kind of plinkety little dink-da-dink-da-dink-ding, it 
it makes you realize the humor in what's going on instead of, oh my gosh, this tragedy is about to occur, you know? Right. And um, he also, not only that, but he'll let you know, just like they did in, in the old movies, where you get the um, the plane that's flying from one place to the other, like you see in Casablanca. Yeah, yeah. You get that identifying music, like, hey, guess what? Here we are. I mean, honestly, what I'm thinking of is the Three Stooges. Like, when the Three Stooges were in Baghdad, they had a definite, you know, Baghdad kind of music sure. going on. And John Williams says that same thing. It's so good. Yeah. Okay. Are you done talking about music? Yeah. Okay. All right. So that'll do it for part two. Please join us next week where we will do a deep dive into the big ideas behind Raiders of the Lost Ark and Back to the Future. Thank you so much for your support of the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Don't forget, we also love to discuss these on social media. So be sure to follow us at Shirley Podcast on Twitter. Shirley Podcast on Facebook. Email us at ShirleyPodcast at gmail.com. Or check out the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast channel on YouTube. And as always, please hit the subscribe button now so that you never miss an episode of the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. All music images and movie clips are used for the purposes of commentary and education in conjunction with the fair use agreement under the U.S. copyright law.